Hello. We are going to be finishing up chapter 9 today in A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. After Johnny had escorted his mother-in-law over to his house, he went out looking for work. Katie was glad to see her mother. With the memory of her own birth pangs still lingering, she had knowledge now of what her mother had suffered when she, Katie, was born. She thought of her mother bearing seven children, bringing them up, watching three of them die, and knowing that those who lived were doomed to hunger and hardship. She had a vision that the same cycle was destined, destined for her less than day old child. She became frantic with worry. What do I know? Katie asked her mother. I can't teach her anything more than I myself know, and I know so little. You are poor, mother. Johnny and I are poor. This baby will grow up to be poor. We can't have any more than we are this day. Sometimes I think that the year past was the best we will ever know. As the years go by and Johnny and I get older, nothing will grow better. All we have now is that we are young and strong enough to work and that will go from us as time passes. Then the real truth came to her. I mean, she thought, that I can work. I can't count on Johnny. I'll always have to look after him. Oh God, don't send me any more children or I won't be able to look after Johnny and I've got to look after Johnny. He can't look after himself. Her mother interrupted her thoughts. Mary was saying, what did we have in the old country? Nothing. We were peasants. We starved. Well then, we came over here. It wasn't so much better except that they didn't take your father for the military though they, the way they would do in the old country. But otherwise, it's been harder. I miss the homeland, the trees and broad fields, the familiar way of living, the old friends. If you could expect nothing better, why did you come to America? For the sake of my children, whom I wish to be born in a free land. Your children haven't done so well, mother. Katie smiled bitterly. There is here what is not in the old country. In spite of hard, unfamiliar things, there is here hope. In the old country, a man can be no more than his father, providing he works hard. If his father was a carpenter, he may be a carpenter. He may not be a teacher or a priest. He may rise, but only to his father's state. In the old country, a man is given to the past. Here he belongs to the future. In this land, he may be what he will, if he has the good heart and the way of working honestly at the right things. That is not so. Your children have not done better than you. Mary Romley sighed. That may be my fault. I know not how to teach my daughters because I have nothing behind me excepting that for hundreds of years my family has worked on the land of some overlord 
I did not send my first child to the school. I was ignorant and did not know at first that the children of folk like us were allowed the free education of this land. Thus, Sissy had no chance to do better than me. But the other three, you went to school. I finished the sixth grade, if that is what's called an education. And your Yanni, she could not pronounce J, did too. Don't you see? Excitement came into her voice. Already it is starting, the getting better. She picked up the baby and held it high in her arms. This child was born of parents who can read and write, she said simply. To me, this is a great wonder. Mother, I am young. Mother, I am just 18. I am strong. I will work hard, mother. But I do not want this child to grow up just to work hard. What must I do, mother? What must I do to make a different world for her? How do I start? The secret lies in the reading and the writing. You are able to read. Every day you must read one page from some good book to your child. Every day this must be until the child learns to read. Then she must read every day. I know this is the secret. I will read, promised Katie. What is a good book? There are two great books. Shakespeare is a great book. I have heard tell that all the wonder of life is in that book. All that man has learned of beauty, all that he may know of wisdom and living are on those pages. It is said that these stories are plays to be acted out on the stage. I have never spoken to anyone who has seen this great thing. But I heard the Lord of our land back in Austria say that some of the pages sing themselves like songs. Is Shakespeare a book in the German? It is of the English. Oh, I so heard our Lord of the land tell his young son, who was setting out for the great university of Heidelberg long ago. And what is the other great book? It is the Bible that the Protestant people read. We have our own Bible, the Catholic one. Mary looked around the room furtively. It is not fitting for a good Catholic to say so, but I believe that the Protestant Bible contains more of the loveliness of the greatest story on this earth and beyond it. A much-loved Protestant friend once read some of her Bible to me, and I found it as I have said. That is the book, then, and the book of Shakespeare, and every day you must read a page to each of your child. Even though you yourself do not understand what is written down and cannot sound the words properly, you must do this that the child will grow up knowing of what is great, knowing that these tenements of Williamsburg are not the whole world. The Protestant Bible and Shakespeare. And you must tell the child the legends I told you, as my mother told them to me and her mother to her. You must tell the fairy tales of the old country. You must tell of those not of the earth who live forever in the hearts of people. 
fairies, elves, dwarfs, and such. You must tell of the great ghost that haunted your father's people and of the evil eye which a hex put on your aunt. You must teach the child of the signs that come to the women of our family when there is trouble and death to be. And the child must believe in the Lord God and Jesus, his only son. She crossed herself. Oh, and you must not forget the Kris Kringle. The child must believe in him until she reaches the age of six. Mother, I know there are no ghosts or fairies. I would be teaching the child foolish lies. Mary spoke sharply. You do not know whether there are not ghosts on earth or angels in heaven. I know there is no Santa Claus. Yet you must teach the child that these things are so. Why? when I myself do not believe. Because, explained Mary Romley simply, the child must have a valuable thing which is called imagination. The child must have a secret world in which live things that never were. It is necessary that she believe. She must start out by believing in things not of this world. Then, when the world becomes too ugly for living in, the child can reach back and live in her imagination. I myself, even in this day and at my age, have great need of recalling the miraculous lives of the saints and the great miracles that have come to pass on earth. Only by having these things in my mind can I live beyond what I have to live for. The child will grow up and find out things for herself. She will know that I lied. She will be disappointed. That is what is called learning the truth. It is a good thing to learn the truth oneself. To first believe with all your heart and then not to believe is good too. It fattens the emotions and makes them to stretch. When, as a woman, life and people disappoint her, she will have had practice in disappointment and will not come so hard. In teaching your child, do not forget that suffering is good too. It makes a person rich in character. If that is so, commented Katie bitterly, then we Romleys are rich. We are poor, yes. We suffer. Our way is very hard, but we are better people because we know of the things I have told you. I could not read, but I told you of all the things I learned from living. You must tell them to your child and add on to them such things as you will learn as you get older. What more must I teach the child? The child must be made, must be made to believe in heaven. A heaven not filled with flying angels, with God on a throne. Mary articulated her thoughts painfully, half in German and half in English. But a heaven which means a wondrous place that people may dream of. As of a place where desires come true. This is probably a different kind of religion. I do not know. And then, what else? Before you die, 
You must own a bit of land, maybe with a house on it that your child or your children may inherit. Katie laughed. Me own land? A house? We're lucky if we can pay our rent. Even so, Mary spoke firmly. Yet you must do that. For thousands of years, our people have been peasants working the land of others. This was in the old country. Here we do better working with our hands in the factory. There is a part of each day that does not belong to the master, but which the worker owns himself. That is good. But to own a bit of land is better. A bit of land that we may hand down to our children that will raise us up on the face of the earth. How can we ever get to own land? Johnny and I work and we earn so little. Sometimes after the rent is paid and the insurance there is hardly enough left for food. How could we save for land? You must take an empty, condensed milk can and wash it well. A can? Cut off the top neatly. Cut strips down into the can the length of your finger. Let each strip be so wide. She measured two inches with her fingers. Bend the strips backward. The can will look like a clumsy star. Make a slit in the top. Then nail the can, a nail in each strip, in the darkest corner of your closet. Each day put five cents in it. In three years, there will be a small fortune, fifty dollars. Take the money and buy a lot in the country. Get the papers that say it is yours. Thus, you become a landowner. Once one has owned land, there is no going back to being a serf. Five cents a day. It seems so little, but where is it to come from? We haven't enough now and with another mouth to feed. You must do thus. You go to the greengrocers and ask how much are carrots the bunch. The man will say three cents. Then look about until you see another bunch, not so fresh, not so large. You will say, may I have this damaged bunch for two cents? Speak strongly and it shall be yours for two cents. That is a saved penny that you put in the star bank. It is winter, say. You bought a bushel of coal for 25 cents. It is cold. You would start a fire in the stove. But wait. Wait one hour more. Suffer the cold for an hour. Put a shawl about you. Say, I am cold because I am saving to buy land. That hour will save you three cents worth of coal. That is three cents for the bank. When you are alone at night, do not light the lamp. Sit in the darkness and dream a while. Reckon out how much oil you saved and put its value in pennies in the bank. The money will grow. Someday, there will be fifty dollars, and somewhere on this long island is a piece of land that you may buy for that money. Will it work, this saving? I swear by the Holy Mother it will.
Then why haven't you ever saved enough money to buy land? I did. When we first landed, I had a star bank. It took me 10 years to save that first $50. I took the money in my hand and went to a man in the neighborhood of whom it was said that he dealt fairly with people who bought land. He showed me a beautiful piece of earth and told me in my own language, this is thine. He took my money and gave me a paper. I could not read. Later, I saw men building the house of another on my land. I showed them my paper. They laughed at me with pity in their eyes. It was that the land had not been the man's to sell. It was, how do you say it in the English? A swindle. Swindle. I. People like us known as greenhorns from the old country, were often robbed by men such as he because we could not read, but you have education. First you will read on the paper that the land is yours, only then will you pay. And you never saved again, mother? I did, all over again. The second time it was harder because there were the many children. I saved, but when we moved, your father found the bank and took the money. He would not buy land with it. He was always one for birds, so he bought a rooster and many hens with the money and put them in the backyard. I seem to remember those chickens, said Katie, a long, long time ago. He said the eggs would bring much money in the neighborhood. Ah, what dreams men have. The first night, twenty starving cats came over the fence and killed and ate many chickens. The second night, the Italians climbed the fence and stole more. The third day, the policemen came and said it was against the law to keep chickens in a yard in Brooklyn. We had to pay him five dollars not to take your father to the station house. Your father sold the few chickens that were left and bought canary birds, which he could own without fear. Thus, I lost the second savings. But I am saving again. Maybe sometime. She sat in silence for a while. Then she got up and put on her shawl. It grows dark. Your father will be coming home from his work. Holy Mary, watch over thee and the child. Sissy came over right from work. She didn't even take time to brush the gray rubber powder from her hair bow. She went into choking hysterics over the baby, pronouncing it the most beautiful baby in the world. Johnny looked skeptical. The baby looked blue and wizened to him, and he felt that there must be something wrong with it. Sissy washed the baby. It must have been bathed a dozen times the first day. She rushed out to the delicatessen store and beguiled the man into letting her open a charge account until Saturday payday. She bought two dollars worth of delicacies. Sliced tongue, smoked salmon, creamy white slices of smoked sturgeon, and crisp rolls. She bought a stack of charcoal, or rather a sack of charcoal, 
and made the fire roar. She brought a tray of supper into Katie, and she and Johnny sat in the kitchen and ate together. The house smelled of warmth, good food, sweet powder, and a stronger candy-like smell that came from a hard, chalkish dish, disc that Sissy wore in an imitation silver filigree heart on a chain around her neck. Johnny studied Sissy as he smoked an after-supper cigar. He wondered what criterion people used when they applied the tags good and bad to their fellow men. Take Sissy. She was bad, but she was good. She was bad where the men were concerned, but she was good because wherever she was, there was life. Good, tender, overwhelming, fun-loving, and strong-scented life. He hoped that his newly born daughter would be a little like Sissy. When Sissy announced she was going to stay the night, Katie looked worried and said there was but the one bed which she and Johnny shared. Sissy declared that she was willing to sleep with Johnny if he would guarantee her a fine baby like Francie. Katie frowned. She knew Sissy was joking, of course, yet there was something true and direct about Sissy. She started to give her a lecture. Johnny cut the whole thing short by saying he had to get over to the school. He couldn't bring himself to tell Katie that he had lost their job. He hunted up his brother, Georgie, who was working that night. Fortunately, they needed another man to wait on table and sing in between. Johnny got the job and was promised another for the following week. He drifted back into the singing waiter business and from that time on never worked at any other job. Sissy got into bed with Katie and they talked most of the night away. Katie told her of her worry about Johnny and her fears of the future. They talked about Mary Romilly, what a good mother she was to Evie and Sissy and Katie. They spoke of their father, Thomas Rom Romilly. Sissy said he was an old rip, and Katie said Sissy ought to show more respect. Sissy said, oh fudge, and Katie laughed. Katie told Sissy of the talk she had had with their mother that day. The idea of the bank so fascinated Sissy that she got up, even though it was the middle of the night, emptied out a can of milk into a bowl, and made the bank then and there. She tried to crawl into the narrow, crowded closet to nail it down, but her voluminous nightgown got her tangled up. She pulled it off and crawled naked into the closet. Excuse me. All of her couldn't fit in the closet. The large, luminous, naked back end of her stuck out as she crouched on her knees, hammering the bank to the floor. Katie had such a fit of giggling that she was afraid she'd bring on a hemorrhage. The loud banging at three o'clock in the morning woke the other tenants. They pounded on the ceiling from below and on the floor from above. Sissy threw Katie into another spasm of giggles by mumbling from the closet that the tenants had a nerve raising such a racket when there was a sick woman in the house. How can anybody sleep, she asked, giving the last nail a terrific bang. The bank in place, she put on her nightgown again, started off the land account by, using, by putting a nickel in the bank, and got back into bed. 
She listened excitedly while Katie told her about the two books. She promised that she would get the two books. They would be her christening present to the baby. Francie spent her first night on earth sleeping snugly between her mother and Sissy. The next day, Sissy set about getting the two books. She went to a public library and asked the librarian how she could get a Shakespeare and Bible for keeps. The librarian couldn't help her out on the Bible, but said there was a worn-out copy of Shakespeare in the files about to be discarded, which Sissy could have. She bought it. It was a tattered old volume containing all of the plays and the sonnets. It had intricate footnotes and detailed explanations as to the playwright's meaning. There was a biography and a picture of the author and steel-cut engravings illustrating scenes from each play. It was printed in small type, two columns to a page on thin paper. It cost Sissy 25 cents. The Bible, while a little harder to come by, was cheaper in the long run. In fact, it cost Sissy nothing. It had a name, Gideon, on the front. A few days after buying the volume of Shakespeare, Sissy woke up one one morning and nudged her current lover, with whom she was spending the night in a quiet family hotel. John, she called him, John, although his name was Charlie, What's that book on the dresser? A Bible? A Protestant Bible? That's right. I'm going to hook it. Go ahead. That's why they put it there. No. Yeah. No kidding. People swipe it, read it, reform and repent. They bring it back and buy another one too so that other people can swipe, read and reform. And that way the firm that puts out the books loses nothing. Well, here's one that they're not going to get back. She wrapped it up in a hotel towel that she was also swiping. Say, a cold fear enveloped her John. You might read it and reform, and then I'd have to go back to my wife. He shuddered and put his arm around her. Promise me that you won't reform. I won't. How do I know you won't? I never listen to what people tell me, and I can't read. The only way I know what is right and wrong is the way I feel about things. If I feel bad, it's wrong. If I feel good, it's right. And I feel good being here with you. She threw her arm across his chest and exploded a kiss in his ear. I sure wish we could get married, sissy. So do I, John. I know we could hit it off. For a while, anyhow, she added, honestly. But I'm married, and that's the hell of the Catholic religion. No divorce. I don't believe in divorce anyhow, said Sissy, who always remarried without the benefit of a divorce. You know what, Sissy? What? You got a heart of gold. No kidding? No kidding. He watched her snap a red silk garter over the sheer lisle stocking she'd pulled up over her shapely leg. Give us a kiss, he begged suddenly. Have we time, she asked in a practical way, but she pulled the stocking off again. That's how the library of Francie Nolan was started.